so it's no surprise that of uh, Dr. Volberding and I, my being the um, more mature of the partnership, that I would um, be the one to introduce the next topic, um, aging and HIV. And I was thinking that, um, you know, I saw first patient with HIV here in New York in the Bronx um, in 1981 at the very beginning of the epidemic. And some of you in the room were here at that time. And we all have aged with HIV, um, uh, and uh, it has been extraordinarily challenging, but also um, enriched our lives, I think, in many ways. And I certainly feel that way. But aging with HIV creates now for the population of people living with HIV new challenges. And um, David Wall from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Associate Professor of Medicine, um, is going to, I think, put this entire issue of aging and HIV in, um, in context and provide some, a lot of new and interesting, I think, important information um, for this issue that not just affects us, but our patients and also our practices. David? Great, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. And it really is intimidating to follow such just a wonderful program that we um, that we enjoyed this morning. And so I'll try to be really um, pretty pithy and, and pretty quick, because I know that there may be some questions, and I want to keep us on time. Um, and I've told this joke repeatedly, but it's so appropriate and true. Is I, I'm from New York, um, and I work in North Carolina. And generally, um, before I moved down to North Carolina, I, I spoke very quickly. And I, I can speak very quickly. But in North Carolina, I can't speak very quickly, because then they don't understand me. But this audience, um, I know I could speak really quickly, and you're not going to have a problem following me. Um, so here it goes. So HIV and aging, uh, there's a lot that's been talked about. That I, I could show you clippings from the New York Times and things like that, where this comes up over and over again, of you know what's going on with aging, and are we seeing accelerated or premature aging. And uh, as Jerry said, I want to provide some context. I'm not going to answer the question. I think perfectly about what's going on. But I think we can all try to get to the same place and understand a little bit more. Is that me? Do you hear that noise? Isn't it very annoying? OK, it stopped. Um, great. Yeah, someone's cell phone. OK. I just want to make sure I didn't do anything like my phone, because I have a timer on for my phone. Um, so again, contextual, I think that's what we're going for. Um, so this is about me and, and sort of my promiscuity in um, going to ad boards and things like that. Um, and these are the learning objectives which are in your packet. Um, so we'll start with a question, as we're supposed to do. And um, so the first question is, as people living with HIV get older, do they, one, experience accelerated aging, in your view? Two, experience more comorbidities. But this is really only because they have more risk factors, like smoking. Um, so it's isolated, really, to lifestyle. Or three, they infuriatingly are less likely to use their turn signals. Don't you hate that? OK. All right, great. Um, yeah, so they, most people here, two-thirds, felt that um, they experienced some accelerated aging. But a third thought, well, maybe this is really just isolated to lifestyle changes. Um, and 6.5% got it right. Okay. All right, compared to younger HIV-infected individuals, so read this one carefully, older positive people, one, 
present with higher CD4 cell counts, two, have better virologic response to ART when started, three, have less robust immunological response, so persistently lower CD4 cell counts than people who are younger or have higher rates of ART discontinuation. Let's hit it. All right, interesting. So most people felt, um, almost everyone felt, yeah, that they have a sluggish robustness in their uh, CD4 response. Great. So we'll talk more about this, and then I'll ask you the questions again, and we'll see what shifts. Okay. So by way of introduction, I'm not going to go through this entire case, but it's an example of what I think we're dealing with when we're talking about aging and HIV. Uh, so I have a patient. This is a real guy. He's a wonderful person, 59 years old. He was diagnosed in 95. He had cryptococcal meningitis and Kaposi sarcoma. Um, he was treated with what was, you know, cutting edge at the time, AZT, 3DC, and Dinavir. And then over time, his ART has switched, mostly due to um, convenience. Um, and I'll get to some specifics about his more recent switches. His HIV RNA has forever been undetectable ever since we had HIV RNA tests, so he preceded that. And his CD4 cell count, which was less than 50, is now approaching 500. In 2005, things started to shift from that sort of, we've got to save your life and, you know, keep you alive from these opportunistic infections to more of the issues that we deal with just as part and parcel of getting older. So we started doing lipid panels and we noticed that his elevated LDL was a problem and his triglycerides. And so we changed his regimen to something we thought was a little bit more friendly, which is to know for FTC and Favrans. But within three months of my changing his medicine, he had a heart attack. We ended up getting a cabbage, put on multiple medications that are listed there. His LDL fell down to less than 70. His triglycerides responded. And then in 2007, I noticed that his hemoglobin A1C was creeping up. Um, let's see what happens next. So giving you sort of the more recent history, which has really been fraught, his LDL and triglycerides have started to climb again. Um, we added some more medications, fenofibrate, fish oil. He's been seen by um, uh, the cardiologist, and they really didn't have too much to add. We tried niacin because of low HDL, and he stopped it due to flushing. His hemoglobin A1C started to um, creep up, and he started on metformin. And then he was complaining of fatigue on metoprolol. You, you know the story. This is, this is what you live every day, those of you who do general medicine. We reduced it, but then his blood pressure went up. And then his serum creatinine went up. So you can see there's this domino effect. One thing leads to you know, unintended consequences. We, we drop his uh, beta blocker, and then his hypertension gets worse, and then um, his creatinine goes up. And remember, he is on tenofovir. So we dosed his tenofovir, as, as Mike Sag was talking about, but still it remained elevated. And then, really hard decision, we switched him to a back of ear 3TC, which we could talk about whether or not that was a good idea or not, but we felt that there was limited other options. There was also some insurance issues that really, um, you know, constrained what our options were therapeutically. So his diabetes is out of control now, and everything's falling apart, um, you know, so he's off the metformin because his renal function was worse, so glipizide was added. Yada, yada, yada. He has sleep apnea. He's getting prescribed for that. He needs a colonoscopy, but he can't afford it because he's self-employed as a hairdresser and he doesn't have any insurance and it's going to cost too much money. He has problems affording some of his other medications. Um, and then, you know, last visit he comes and he says, can I have something for anxiety? And I said, I, sure, as long as you can give me some to share with you. Um, so 
this is a big problem. So, you know, this is a real life issue that I'm still dealing with, and there's going to be a continue. There's going to be another slide on this guy next year, um, you know, because there's more more stuff that's going on with him, and and these are the things that we're going to see. You know, there. This is not a composite, but this is all accumulating within this one patient. But parts of this we're seeing in many of our patients. So, no, so I didn't go to Central Park and have a caricature done on me. That that's not me. Um, so there's a number of things that I think we should talk about. Um, and one is we're getting older. We're all getting older. And my patients come and they're complaining they're getting older. And, and as Mike and, and others have reminded us, it's good to get older. Remember, the alternative is not so hot. And you know, I tell my patients, I want you to live long enough to get your heart attack, your stroke, your cancer. Because otherwise, you're going to die of really bad things. So you know, that's what we all die of. And you should too. But we want it to happen. It's true, it's true. Um, but we want it to happen at the right time. And I think the timing is everything. And that's what people are really concerned about. And, and I want to kind of dissect that out with you and, and hear what you have to say. Because there's a lot of hype about this. And as you can already tell, and just as a, a sort of a preface, I am not the, a sky is falling kind of guy when it comes to aging and HIV. And I think we have to be a little careful of overreacting without minimizing what we see is going on. Okay, So we're getting older. You all know this, you know, great study published from the um, RCC cohort that shows really good modeling um, based upon accumulated data of thousands and thousands of patients that, you know, someone diagnosed now, a 35-year-old guy who doesn't inject drugs, um, at a T-cell count over 200, can expect to live 35 or more years, meaning into his 70s. So we know people are living longer. So long For people starting HIV therapy, and many people don't appreciate this, over 500, life expectancy is no different from that expected from the general population without HIV. So if you start HIV therapy above 500 CD4 account, the modeling indicates there is no difference in life expectancy. There's no um, increased risk. We also know that people are infected as they get older. Um, so about 10%, one out of 10 people infected nowadays are age 50 or above, adding to the pool of people living with HIV who are older. And really, maybe a leading edge of what we can expect with the epidemic are or data from places where the epidemic hit first. And so we see in San Francisco where the epidemic was you know, really uh, first noted among many other places, metropolitan areas, specifically on the coast, uh, that the proportion of people living with HIV who are over 50 has increased steadily and now is over 50%. And what we're probably going to see in this country, based upon projections from the CDC and others, is that sometime within the next five years or so, 50% or more of people living with HIV in our country will be age 50 plus. So we have to deal with this. This is even as new infections are concentrated in younger men, we're still seeing that there's going to be this graying, this aging of the population, not only in general, but also um, in the context of HIV. Um, and so cohort data, and I have to say a lot of the data I'm going to show you comes from Europe, which is really remarkable in several ways. And it just shows that despite the efforts of Mike Sag and others to really create um, comprehensive cohorts that represent people living with HIV, we're really behind, I think, uh, in many ways from what the Europeans have been able to do in, in coalescing data from multiple places. The Swiss cohort has really been a, a wonderful way to look at things, but you have to put it through the prism of it's, it's Switzerland, and they have a very different healthcare system. Um, but when you look at the data that they've been able to collect on thousands of people living with HIV, it's really kind of remarkable, and I'll do the pointer thing. Um, so you can kind of see it. But they looked at a couple of different things. One is um, comorbidities. And you can see as people age, so less than 50, 50 to 64, and 65 plus, 
uh, and numbers are down here, so pretty decent numbers, the number of comorbidities um, increases. And so the darker the color, the more comorbidities you have. And then the more medications you have. So, you know, 50% or more of people who are 65 plus were on, you know, two to four medicines, um, you know, in addition to the three ARVs that they were on. So there's been studies that we've done and others that show that the median number of pills that a person with HIV is taking is approaching 10 per day. It's seven or eight or nine, depending upon what study you look at. Um, and this increases with age um, and with comorbidities that accumulate with age. And that leads to polypharmacy and, and, and lots of issues that we have to talk about. So this is real and this is, this is something we're seeing. So what's the effect of um, you know, HIV on aging? I think that's, that's a big question. We can talk about what's the effect of aging on HIV, but let's talk a little bit about what we think is going on with the virus and how that um, affects the aging process. So you know, this is a nice schematic of what may be um, some of the things we have to think about, and, but there's no weights of the arrows. So I don't want you to think that these are all equal um, because they're all the same you know, points. We, there may be differences, and I think there are certainly differences in what, what um, perpetuates um, this premature aging problem that we may be seeing. So there's the normal aging process, and then we see this pile-on of other effects. Maybe the virus itself, as Mike talked about, inflammation and what goes on with inflammation, co-infections, certainly there's some component there, um, and I'll skip this for a second. And we see that there's persistent immune activation that's part and parcel, maybe, although somewhat distinct, not always hand-in-hand -hand with the inflammation we're talking about. Maybe some drug toxicity, and we can't ignore that. Um, but what about lifestyle factors? We certainly know that it's hard to compare apples with apples when you're talking about HIV-positive people and HIV-negative people the concentration of risk factors among the people living with HIV is very different than what we see in negative controls. It's hard to find a good control group that you can really match to people living with HIV. And I think that's a major challenge in all the data I'm going to show you and in our thinking about this. So there's these big factors like smoking, which we know is several fold higher among people living with HIV. But there's other less tangible factors that I'll just call hard living that are really hard to document and quantify that I do think plays a role here. Uh, and, and this is a point that I think can be argued. So you can't see this really well, but it helps me um, articulate, I think, what the issue is. This is one major study that did compare HIV-positive and HIV-negative people. Again, it's European. It's in one center in Italy and really has set a tone. Um, and what it shows is typical of these kind of data where you have HIV-positive people versus HIV-negative and then charts. And it could be you know, renal failure, and you see HIV-positive people as they age, more problems with renal function. Diabetes, excess diabetes. Um, bone disease, more bone fractures. Hypertension, maybe not a significant difference, but there's some splay. Cardiovascular disease, differences that you see, especially as people get older. And this is interesting. They did control um, for a bunch of different factors. They looked at age, they looked at gender trying to get you know, as close a control group as they could to the HIV positive. But the paper doesn't say anything about smoking. Maybe it's Italy and everyone's smoking. It's just you know, de facto, everyone's smoking, so it doesn't have to be controlled for. But it'd be nice to talk about it. So you know, I think that there's some lifestyle issues here that are not accounted for that really have to be part of a very, very robust multivariable analysis. But that said, these results do lead people to worry that there's an excess um, comorbidity problem among people living with HIV. And if you notice the same thing over and over, it really starts to hit, no surprise, um, once you hit 40. After that, it's uphill. 
And so this paper, again, is sort of iconic in some of its graphics, and, and you've seen things like this before, but it shows that as people age, more comorbidities in the HIV people, even compared to aging controls. Again, you know, what these people's lives were like in Italy compared to these people's lives in Italy, I don't know, but I would say that they're probably not perfectly parallel, and there are things that happen to you um, that may be associated with your risk of acquiring HIV that are, um, again, hard to pick up on a survey. But they're there, and I think it's something we have to think about. Um, so people have taken exactly the data I showed you, and this is a report that just came out of Croy, um, just from this last session, um, and they said, well, let's look at those data and see what impact that would have in the United States. If those are true, what would that mean? What would that translate to clinically? Um, and so this is a population study, and they used you know, data from you know, general population, mortality information, and comorbidity, and they created three different groups, HIV positive, based upon the, the Italian data, and they also compared them to the general population and people without HIV but have risks for HIV. So these are HIV uninfected, but they, they created sort of this risk profile to try to account for what I was talking about. And there's lots of limitations. But this is what they found, their assumptions are, are, I think are generally right here, that people in the general population are the standard. HIV negative, high risk for HIV may have a, a similar sort of survival, but people with HIV have competing risks for survival, right? So there's other things that kill people with HIV in the United States, especially since we have people presenting rather late for care oftentimes. And so life expectancy overall for people living with HIV is going to be less than those who don't have HIV. And that, that makes sense, so I think that, that's kind of okay. Um, and then what they did was they looked at different um, age ranges here and then lifetime and risk for cardiovascular disease specifically based upon the data I showed you from Italy. And what you can see is basically there's not too much of an excess risk at age 40, maybe a little bit, but certainly over 50. You start to see that accumulation of risk where there's a difference both for men especially, but even women. Um, lifetime risk, you see a lower one because people die before they get cardiovascular disease. Um, so if you die of your cryptococcal meningitis or of bacterial sepsis, you can't get cardiovascular disease. Um, so that's why you see for a lifetime there's this competing risk issue. But if you do look at the, the age bars, there does seem to be about a 10-year earlier um, incidence of cardiovascular disease among people living with HIV compared to people without HIV. Translating those data. So these are not actual patients followed you know, in a large cohort. This is trying to model it through a computer simulation. But it's based upon data that we just talked about, you know, that nugget of data that I think may have some limitations, and so we should be careful about being very alarmist. There are other data that come from cohort studies, especially the DAD, again, a European cohort, that does not see as significant a magnitude. So what do I think? I think there is some risk, but I don't think it's as great as maybe a lot of patients living with HIV, the patients who read POS magazine and who are online and searching, that they're worried about. Uh, they're sweating bullets and am I going to get this? Is it like you know two, three, four times fold risk for me compared to if I didn't have HIV? And I, I think it's probably not that that high. Um, other things that we will talk about, and I'm sure this will come up in the question and answer um, as we talk more about cardiovascular disease, but kidney disease, again, same sort of thing where you look over time and more people living with HIV have higher risk for kidney disease over time. Again, that reflects a lot of different factors. Uh, and it isn't really driven, when you look at the data, by uh, HIV therapy. It's not, this is not tenofovir effect. This is something that's going on and has a lot to do with a lot of different things. And it's pretty prevalent. Fracture risk, same sort of thing. You can compare positives to negatives. And it's been done in multiple different cohorts. Here's a VA cohort where you do see fracture risk being increased in people living with HIV. 
again, what does that do to? Um, is that a medication effect? Doesn't seem to be a medication effect. Seems to be living with HIV. Remember, all these cohorts reflect people who've been under care for a long time. Under care under a system where people are diagnosed and largely have had HIV infection for a number of years before they're diagnosed, right? Because we know that because they come in with T cell counts that are under 500. Then the paradigm has been don't treat them. So we don't treat them for several years. Then we treat them. And in studies, we say, oh, lo and behold, they have weak bones. You know, they've got plaque in their arteries. Um, and they're not thinking right. What's going on here? Well, what about all that lead time of unchecked viremia? What about all that lead time of inflammation, of immune activation? We're living in, in, in a situation where we're looking at data that's somewhat archaeological, where we're looking at data on people who are treated in a very different way than I think we're going to see people treated in the future. So I'm interested to see how this evolves. But I do think we have to keep that in mind. These are folks who for a long time went without treatment and, what, and had low CD4 cell counts, relatively low CD4 cell counts. So I think that this is a pretty messy situation. So there's other things, and I'm not going to go over it. It's, it's, you know, I don't want this to be encyclopedic, but there are other comorbidities that I think people know about and that we have to deal with and that are, um, are things we see in clinic all the time. So what about HIV treatment and aging? Um, as I mentioned before, People with uh, HIV who are older present for care later, and the colors don't come out right, but um, here's people who are less than 50. These are people who are over 50. No matter what year you look at, people with HIV come in with lower CD4 cell counts. Um, so they might have been infected for a longer period of time before they come in um, and get recognized. That also adds some bias, right, to the data that we're talking about. So there's a nice study, again, from Europe, a large, large study. Look at this, 67,000 people. These are people who are starting HIV therapy, and they stratified it by age. And I'm going to get down to the nitty gritty. Um, and the points I just want to make is that when you look at baseline, before people start HIV medicine, and you look by age, the baseline HIV RNA is higher among older people, and the CD4 cell count is lower. So people who are older present with lower CD4 cell counts and higher viral loads. Um, when you look at response to therapy, people who are older have a better response as far as virologic response. Older people take their medicines better. Older people do less crack cocaine, right? Older people do less things like share their medicines with other people or, you know, you know, or put it in a trailer that gets blown up and all those sorts of things I hear. And CD4 cell count gain, though, look at this. Over time, there is, there is a little difference, especially here. But over time, and I'll show you data from the United States, they catch up. It takes them longer to have a CD4 cell count that rises to someone who is younger, but they do catch up. Um, here's achieving a CD4 cell count over 200 at 12 months. So they don't do as well at 12 months at getting a CD4 cell count that stays up. Um, new AIDS events, though, are less. So they do better. And um, what about discontinuation of therapy? Um, so similar rates of discontinuing therapy over time, lower rates, though, for those age 40 and above. So people who are older seem to discontinue their HIV therapy less often, despite all the concerns about comorbidities and things like that. Okay. Here's Kaiser data. I'm going to show you the same sort of thing, same sort of analyses. So this is from the United States. And again, achieving a viral load less than 500 copies at 12 months, older people win, hands down. And experiencing viral rebound, less likely to experience viral rebound. And CD4 cell count, this is really nice, because here you can see in blue, again, it took them a while to get that CD4 cell count, but by three years, they were up there, just like people who were younger. So I think that's encouraging. Um, so we're a little slower, but we get there eventually. 
Okay. So why is this? I already mentioned better adherence. Um, so we think that that has a lot to do with it. And, and I think there's also less chaos sometimes in, in people's lives. All right, so what about management considerations for the older HIV-positive person? Um, you know, again, I don't want to provide a comprehensive review of general medicine. I think most people in this room um, probably know more about this than I do. If you're a general internist or a family practice doc, you deal with uh, many of the things that we, as HIV specialists, are going to workshops to learn. How do we manage cardiovascular risk? How do we get people to stop smoking? How do we diagnose diabetes? What do we do about bone density? Um, so you all probably know more about that than we do. So I don't want to go through specifics. And if there's questions, we can certainly take them um, during the break or even afterwards we can talk about it. One thing you should recognize, though, is we show really nice um, tables from the Department of Health and Human Service guidelines about when to start therapy and what to start. There is a section written on older people living with HIV. And it has its own box. And the box is pretty carefully considered, as is that whole document. And number one, it says that HIV therapy is recommended in patients 50 years or older, regardless of CD4 cell count. Okay, so we, we don't talk too much about this one when we talk about that big box, but it's there. It's in the guidelines. The guidelines say over 50, therapy is recommended. There may be more adverse events. We understand that. We have to look for things. We have to monitor organ systems. There's more possibility for drug interactions, because as people get older, they get more drugs. And that you know, primary care and HIV experts need to work together. Uh, it makes sense. And we shouldn't ignore secondary transmission issues in people who are older, because they can transmit their virus. And we didn't talk about it um, today and not in this talk. But there are great data that show that, especially among older people who feel relatively well, who are not very frail, sexual activity is not an exception. It's the rule. People are sexually active into the older years quite a bit. Uh, and there's great data that show that um, from a national survey here in the United States. So secondary prevention is really important as well. And I'm sure all of you have stories. Um, frailty, though, is something that I think we should talk about. And Amy Justice um, from Yale has come to this, uh, I think, forum as well and spoken about this. And I think does a great job of trying to get us to appreciate this sort of aging phenotype of people who are older. Um, so this aging phenotype as it ex exists with HIV is somewhat specific. And she and the VA has done a, has done a really nice job of, of delineating what are the factors that seem to really account for this type of progression. And there's some interesting things on her list that they're always tinkering with it and playing with it and validating it. But I think it really works, even outside of the VA cohort. Um, but one of the things I think is really important is that hemoglobin, so anemia, is a bad sign. It's, it's bad if you're anemic, even slightly. Um, and, and certainly GFR or co-infection and um, assessments of liver function. And, and she's shown really nicely that if you use this as sort of a Framingham-like prognosticator, it does predict mortality. Uh, and some of you may be using it. Um, the frailty phenotype, though, can be looked at in a bunch of different ways, not just with the VAX index, but um, with other types of things like listed here, like the frailty phenotype. And in the MAX cohort, this has been looked at. And MAX is great because it's positive and negative people. They're all men. They're all men who have sex with men. Again, there are some differences between the controls and the cases. But um, by and large, it's, a, it's pretty close. And I think this is one of the great opportunities to try to look at this type of thing. But you can see frailty was much more common in people with HIV in purple compared to HIV negative, especially at older age groups. And again, I think there are some differences between negative and positive people. And we can talk all about that. But this is, this is pretty striking. Um, and I think these are high numbers. You know, a third of people over 70 compared to 25%. Uh, that's pretty big. 
Um, and then, you know, this is another study that looked, um, again, I think, uh, at a cohort in Italy, um, and, and just looked at people, 350 or so people who were with HIV, um, just all comers, and found that, you know, pre-frailty, so having some elements of frailty and um, frailty, um, were seen in about two-thirds of the patients. So it's there when you look for it. It depends how you look for it. But uh, we are seeing some of these elements that we know are associated with, with um, poor aging in the general population being somewhat um, more hyperendemic in, in our patient population. And the risk factors, although I think this is sort of chicken and egg, um, so, you know, diabetes, um, neurological disease, you know, what's associated with frailty and purple, um, arthritis, you know, viral hepatitis was huge, threefold hazard. Um, you know, these are things that we're seeing in our patients. So if you see more of those things and they're associated with frailty and we're seeing higher prevalence of, let's say, hepatitis C or smoking or things that lead to some of these things, um, then it, it's no surprise that we're going to have more frail people. Doesn't mean it's the virus, doesn't mean it's their ART. It could just be that this is what happens when people um, live the types of lives um, that are associated sometimes with acquiring this virus. So management, um, it's the traditional stuff. We have to screen. Um, we can use things like the Bax Index. We can think about um, other ways that we can assess uh, frailty that many of you know about. And we can intervene by reducing risk and treating prevalent conditions pretty aggressively. I think we, we, that's what we aim to do in our general pa uh, patient population and certainly want to do in HIV as well. Um, to help you, there are guidelines. And I think, again, in lieu of me going through table after table of what you should be doing as far as um, recommendations, um, the IDSA, HIV-MA um, guidelines are really great for primary care. And there's been publications regarding this, too. They're not hard to find. And basically, the bottom line is you treat people living with HIV basically like you do people living without HIV with some very minor caveats. So maybe you have to be a little bit more aggressive, perhaps about bone disease if you can. Um, but other than that, it's really pretty much the same. We just have to remember to do it in our busy practices where we've got a lot of other stuff that we're dealing with um, when we're talking about people living with HIV and caring for them. So um, this is a picture of Jerry Freeland that I, I found on the web. Um, um, his hair is a little back. Um, but, but you know, I, I find a lot of inspiration from this photograph. It's actually hanging in my gym. Um, and I think that this is great. And, and, you know, I do think that we have to think of our bodies as uh, and it's hard to talk about this in the United States, and it's hard. It's hard in general, but we're busy people. But you know, these are machines, and we've got to we've got to take care of these machines, just like we take care of our cars or anything else that can break down. Um, and I think as we age, we ha we really have to think hard about how we want to age. Um, and people living with HIV, as we've heard all, all morning, are stressed in so many different ways. But for the few that can re that really want to live, for the few that are plugged in, um, and for who this is accessible. I do think we should really try to coach them um, on how to live um, healthy as they get older. And I think there are examples of that that we see all around us that it's not just luck all the time or good genes. It's, it takes work. So let's go back to our questions and we'll end up. So um, remember this question, as people get older, what's going on? Do they experience accelerated aging? Um, or is it really just their comorbidities that counts for everything? Um, or are they still not likely to use their turn signals? Yeah, I think that's right. So I think you guys did a good job. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that um, for me, I think, and I don't want to hit the point home too hard, 
I think that it's not just all lifestyle. I think the virus is doing stuff too. I think living with that virus and the immune activation, I think that plays a role there. So I think you're right, and I think more of you understand that, um, um, and that the aging experience, so there's not an exclusive answer here. But it's both one and two, but I think two, it's not exclusively just the lifestyle stuff. But I'm glad you're appreciating the lifestyle plays a big role. Okay, let's go to the next question. Okay, so this one may shift. So um, older folks compared to younger folks, or um, yeah, older folks compared to younger folks present with higher CD4 cell counts, have better virologic response, less robust immunological response over a long period of time, higher rates of ART discontinuation. Well done. Nice. Okay. And I believe that is it. So let's take some questions. Okay. Thank you for uh, another excellent uh, talk. Um, Having grown old with HIV, I can tell you there are some additional benefits. Um, you get a discount on Metro North, <laughs> and also in some movie theaters. Um, but uh, beyond that, um, not too much. Uh, uh, so I, I like that talk because it put this into a real life perspective in terms of aging. Um, it's not unique to people with HIV. There are special issues for those who living with HIV, but it is part of the life cycle. And um, you have to see that in, in context. Um, I'd just be curious in terms of uh, uh, your own practices, um, what percentage of people do you care for who are over 50 now in your practices? Uh, let me ask it differently. How many of you care for people in your practice who are um, or that greater than, hmm, I would say that 40% of your practice is among people live, who are over 50 years of age. Yeah. So um, as expected, not different here than anywhere else. And uh, problems I think we're all confronting are complicated but part of life. OK, um, here's question one. Um, a singlet tablet regimens or once daily regimens more or less valuable in older patients, um, given yeah. executive function issues? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think um, all of us recognize the value of the consolidation of medications. I think that's what we would want um, in our own lives. And I think for older in, uh, infected individuals, it does help simplify uh, their medication therapy in a number of different ways. One, it's easier to manage fewer bottles. And there was a really nice study that came out of Alberta, Canada that showed that since I think it was 1998 to 2010, the average number of pills that a person with HIV takes has dropped from 12 down to 6.7. So that's still a lot of pills, um, but pretty good compared to where we were, and we knew that. So I think it really does help keep things straight. Uh, there could be problems, of course. There's a downside when you're not sure which medication in a fixed dose combination is causing a problem. And if you have to manipulate that, then you have to break apart medicines. But overall, I think the benefits are greater than the downsides. 
And yes, I look for convenience, especially in people who have cognitive impairment or are challenged in other ways. Great. Um, question about cancer screening in uh, older people with HIV and other updated guidelines for appropriate cancer screening or surveillance in people with HIV as they age. Yeah, cancer screening is really, I think, paramount um, because cancer is uh, so prevalent among people um, as they age and especially among, I think, the people we're seeing who have HIV because, you know, CD4 cells do a lot and, and one of the things they are helpful for is cancer surveillance. And so, again, when you have people who've been living for a long time with a CD4 cell count under 500, their ability to look for and then eliminate, destroy cancer cells is not as good. Um, so I do worry long term about people who presented to care with a lower CD4 cell count, have a history of nadir CD4 cell counts that are low, and already have some immunosenescence that just happens naturally that allows cancers to develop unchecked. So I agree. I think that cancer screening is really, really important, but I wouldn't go overboard. I would follow the recommendations that are out there now. In HIV, though, we get a little fuzzy and we say, well, you know, the recommendations aren't out there for us to do anal pap smears on the general population. Should we be doing that in our population? And, and Tim Wilkin can probably answer this question better than anyone, but, you know, we're starting to incorporate that more and more. So that might be a cherry on top sort of screening thing that we do for our patients living with HIV based upon risk. Uh, but generally what we're talking about is the same exact thing you should be doing for people not living with HIV. In terms of age-specific screening? In terms of age-specific screening. And if right. you believe in PSA for your patient who's not HIV-infected and is 55 years old without a family history of early prostate cancer, well, then, you know, I think you should do the same thing for your HIV-positive. But if you don't believe in it, based upon the recommendation and the data, then don't do it special just for someone living with HIV. We know about cervical cancer risk in women, of course. Is there any information related to breast cancer in women? and aging in HIV? Yeah, so there's been a number of different studies, again, that have tried to look at excess cancers, malignancies in people living with HIV. And you have to think again about what's the right comparator group. So some really interesting data have been looking at other populations that are immunocompromised. And so you see comparisons, let's say, to renal transplant patients, because they're immunocompromised and they do get cancers. Turns out they get sort of different types of cancers than people living with HIV and different types of cancers than you see in the general population. Suffice it to say that in HIV, what we see is a lot of cancers that are excessive are mediated by infections, by viruses. So you see HPV-related malignancies or EBV-related malignancies much more commonly in people with HIV, again, I think, because of the low CD4 cell count that we tolerate in people living with HIV or that we have to deal with because we have no other choice because they present late or they just can't get their T cell count up. But breast cancer not being virally mediated is not one of the cancers we see more excessively um, when you look at other risk factors in HIV compared to people without HIV. Um, do you have any special um, comments about starting regimens in people who are older with HIV disease compared to younger people? So it's a great question. I think one thing that hopefully will be a take home from my talk is that generally older people do well with their HIV therapies. Uh, and so I think that's really a, a, a good thing to recognize that you know people do take their medicines, they respond. As long as we counsel them, we monitor them, I think it goes relatively well regardless of what you start them on. You do have to look for the drug-drug interactions because they are on. We just did a study in our clinic. It's only 150 people, but we found that 
average number, median, median, not average, median number of medications that people are on are eight. So there's eight medications people are taking, and that includes vitamin supplements, everything. Anything, it's a pill or a liquid that you put into your body. So there's a lot of opportunities for drug interactions. That would be my number one caveat. But otherwise, I can't say that I think one regimen is better than another regimen or another in older people. Those studies really haven't been done. And we have used a bunch of different therapies, um, all different therapies in older folks, and it's worked relatively well. So I can't say, oh, don't use efavirenz. I certainly have used efavirenz in older folks, and it's been fine. But if you have someone who's already dealing with some of the things that may be mistaken or overlap with toxicity of efavirenz, well, why would you want to muddy the waters when you have so many other choices? Same thing for any organ uh, dysfunction in an older person. Why compound that um, with a drug that may have that toxicity? So I think there's a lot of you know, picking and choosing, and we have such a, you know, a broad palette uh, that we can use to treat people that I, I don't think there's anything that you would preclude that would go off the table. So one more question about pain management. Uh, one more question about medications in elderly uh, people or older people um, across the board, not just for HIV, but the sort of growing awareness of a tremendous amount of use, both prescription and non-prescription use, of pain medications, and whether there are any particular nuances or issues that relate to the aging person with HIV disease. Yeah, really great question, and um, this, this does um, cut across age categories. We do see a lot of use, um, both sanctioned and unsanctioned, um, medication use for pain, uh, and that is another one of these medication categories we see a lot of in our analyses. I think we tend to sometimes overuse pain medicines in my clinic, um, and I, I think I'm guilty of that. And I think that we've had a lot of people who've had peripheral neuropathy um, who say they haven't responded to other medicines. So subjective complaints regarding pain that you really can't quantify or objectively assess. And I think we've, we've fallen a little bit victim, I, I think in my clinic, to a little bit of a carrot. You know, come on in, engage in care, get your viral load, take your HIV medicine, keep your viral load undetectable, and you can get some Percocet. Um, so I think we have to move. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm among friends, so I can share. Um, so I think we're trying to move away from secrets, that. secrets, yes. <laughs> it, it happens. And so I certainly have patients who come back, and we refill their prescriptions, and this yeah. drives my nurses crazy. But I will yeah. say I have other patients who are older, and I do take care of a lot of older patients just by happenstance, because I've been in this long enough. And, and I have noticed how remarkable it's been that when I assess their pain and I treat their pain, how their quality of life improves dramatically. Um, so that's the other side of the coin. So I, I have several of my older patients who have really bad cervical disc disease or whatever, where I've given them pretty mild doses of pain medicines and uh, narcotic pain medicines carefully, and, and, and they, they love me, and they feel so much better, and they, their quality of life has just improved dramatically. I think that's a very good um, point to close on. Good. And um, quality of life, dramatic improvement is something we all aim for not necessarily require pain medicine, but when you do, it's critically important. Okay, thank you very much for a wonderful talk.